Hey, what's up? Welcome to Steve McGrath's Basecraft. So yeah, I actually picked up a new bass there yesterday. It's a swap I did with a friend of mine. I gave him uh, one of the P bases I did up. It's, um, uh, what is it? It's a Hofner, the Jack. It's like um, a thing from the 80s, like a copy of a status bass. So um, it's like Hofner body and neck and then a Steinberg headless system. So I've never really owned a headless. I played one for a while, back when I was in a blues cover band who belonged to guitarist. It was an awful yoke, a fretless thing. So this is my first time playing one in about 20 years, I'd say. But uh, yeah, this thing is in an awful state. It's been under a bed or something or in a garage for years. So all the screws are rusted. I can't remove them. I'm going to have to figure that out. All the electronics are shot. And um, uh, if you're watching this, you can see that I've started to clean it up. And uh, this is a nice little project to get stuck into for the summer. So today's guest on the podcast is Joe McGuigan. And Joe is the bass player in Trash Metal Gods from Newry Gamma Bomb. And uh, now these lads have been going a long time in the Irish metal scene, nearly 20 years. So yeah, that's that's serious longevity for a band. And uh, Joe's been there from the start, one of the founding members. And uh, he's a really good bass player. And um, he had loads to talk about. About they've, I think, what do they have? Six albums. And they've done worldwide tours. They've been signed since album two. They've, see, they've seen a lot in the 20 years they've been together. And uh, it was great to chat to Joe about his um, philosophy when it comes to bass playing. And he had a lot to say about, you know play the role of the bass in metal and things like that and his own influences and metal tones and what kind of basses he used for playing and he also plays in at the moment he's playing in like a rock cover band doing credence and sabbath and loads of stuff like that are sabbath metal or rock well it just they used to be full-on metal i suppose but now people kind of call them could almost classify them as hard rock but anyway let's just kick off and uh, as usual can you like subscribe all that stuff uh still have basecraft merch so give me a buzz if you want one of these t-shirts links in the description oh almost forgot big shout out to richie from the metal cell podcast so the metal cell is an irish metal podcast that's out weekly hosted by richie duhig and uh, joe is a co-host on it sometimes when they do the metal panel and uh, yeah it's an awesome podcast so if you want to learn more about the irish metal scene check that out i'll put a link in the description and um yeah well richie if you're watching okay lads here we go I think um, you're my second second metal um, guest I've had on. I had Keen from God Alone, so cool. it's good to represent some, the Irish metal scene. You know, get some of you guys on. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, your band are unique, though. I think uh, I was looking, you know, looking you up before this, and I've seen you before. Actually, I saw you at Hellfest. Was it 2007? Um, or I think 2000... we did the 2009 and 2013. Yeah, yeah, I was there. That I saw you that year. It was class. He played like really early in the morning. It was about 11 or 12 o'clock or something, was it? We actually kind of like doing those spots sometimes. If you're doing like, you know, a main stage early in the morning, you're kind of like blowing the cobwebs out of people of hangovers. So, oh, that was definitely the case. We were, um, I was there with Colin from Zora actually. This was years before Zora or even a thing like. And uh, yeah, we were we just got up and we started pulling everyone. It was like support the Irish. Literally, everyone in the campsite was like completely hung over and just running into the into sea. So it was a good, and it was a great crowd for that early. It was class. Yeah, no, and it's a great old festival. We uh, we just confirmed for doing it next year, so we're glad to be going back anyway. You know, 
Oh, the lineup is kind of mental. I was looking. It's kind of like a, a joke or a dream lineup of like the greatest metal festival that ever was or could be. Everyone apart from Slayer, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. I'd like to go now. I must look into going, but I'm just, just is it, how does it work? Is it because uh, it's spread over? I know there's like Friday, Saturday, and then there's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, yeah. Sunday. So, so would there be like music two weekends, between? Um, and then the original weekend, I think, is sold out. So it's just like for the last four days that they're selling tickets in in a couple of weeks for you know. Ah, okay. So if you're there. Some people might stay for another weekend, but could they? Can you, you can't stay in the campsite, can you, till the next weekend? I presume not. They probably boot you out and ask you to come back a couple of days later or something. Uh, some excuse for a session. I was thinking, imagine going there in your van or something, go away for a few days, then come back. I tell you what, I'm not bloody fit for it anymore. Like I couldn't do five days on the trot. I'd be sitting wanting to curl up in a ball on the sofa. <laughs> uh, you have to festival smart. That's what you got to do. <laughs> When I'm at the yeah. picnic, I all have a really good uh, parking space that I can get into the venue with my own drink in about 10 minutes. Yep. But when I get up in the morning, I can get to Super Value for like fresh bread and breakfast in about Great 20 idea. minutes. So it's like that that's how you do it smart, you know, and survive. The when hangover. we used to do uh, used to do electric picnic, we like, you know, bring a big massive vat of stew in the backseat of the car. Mm. And then you could sit about and like, um, you know, you would always have a load of stew sitting there to pump you up for the next day, like you know. Yeah, I bring the the gas cooker. I'd be cooking on in the in the back of the van in the car park. Does the job. But I never saw you at but, the picnic. Um, Surprised to hear that there was a metal band at the picnic because. Oh no! Like we didn't we didn't play. We just went go as punters really. Like you know. Mm. My cat is annoying the frig out of me here. Yeah, <laughs> I have to go on. They all too- the pets are like that. They're like, oh, is the red light on? Now I'll come in and annoy them. No, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, it's because my guitar is sitting in his uh, favourite spot, so he's letting me know. Would he not, he'd probably just knock it over just to be a bollocks. So I'll just knock it over, break the headstock. Is that right, bud? So, there you go. But, so, uh, man, um, bass guitars then. Let's yeah, yeah. Bass. Well, we could talk about anything. It don't have to be all <laughs> bass guitars, but um, yeah, I suppose uh, you're most known as the metal bass guy, but do you play other genres as well, or is it mainly metal yeah. that you, you stick to? No, I play play bits and bobs, other stuff. Um, like me and a couple of guys around lockdown set up a kind of just cover band doing 60s and 70s stuff. So doing lots of Creedence Clearwater Revival and, you know, stuff like that. Jimi Hendrix, loads of 60s stuff and uh, all that kind of blather. But it's a bit of crack. You know what it is? It's just like with without gigs or, you know, there's not really any reason for Gamma Bomb to be rehearsing. You know, we don't have a drummer, mm. really, a full-time drummer at the minute, so... It's kind of like, um, it's nice having something to do outside of metal, you know, just yeah. to sit and keep on top of your chops and stuff like that, you know. And do you completely change your tone? Because it's definitely a, the the modern metal tone per, suits metal perfectly. But if you were to dial in like a more old school tone, it, it just get lost completely. So do you change your sound for doing this more classic rock thing? <laughs> no, I should really, so I should. <laughs> like, it's just kind of like, it's like a load of Creedence songs with like, you know, like Duff McKagan or Lemmy type bass tone. There's a big plank, 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 plank kind of <laughs> sound. But um, I, well, I do like you know. There's there's some tunes really. I think a lot of it's in your hands. You know, like mm. like if it's a sort of mellow Hendrix song and stuff. Like you're nearly better just playing it lightly I- instead of like messing around with your settings more. You know, are you playing like with but, the uh, plectrum as well, like like you do in Gamma Bomb or yeah. mixing it up? Um, I no, I use I use uh, my fingers for playing with um. 
playing other stuff as well. And I do use my fingers occasionally with Gambom, but it's just like, I don't know, man. <laughs> For ages, I was trying to get, you know, the Billy Shane technique. Like he was like talking about how you can do perfect 16ths. But every you know, with your four fingers, <laughs> and uh, but like you have to basically start every time you're doing four, there's a new dominant finger, so it's going like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and um, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work for a technique that you mightn't use that often, or you could just Not use really. a plectrum, maybe flying on the 16s. I know that's it, like, but um, I, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I, th- I think uh, there's definitely a lot to be said for both, um. I don't really understand people who have either a Nazi approach to either. Like, I think it's like, if you want to play with the pick, grand, or if you don't want to, grand. It's not, like, I don't think there's any wrong or right way to play those kind of parts, you know? No, you like when um, Newstead joined Metallica, people were probably going crazy. Like, I can't believe they got a bass player that doesn't use his fingers, but he was he, he played all the parts and he just put his own twist on them and they sounded great, like. Well, funny enough, this is a weird thing, right? A lot of bands... Uh, when if they're changing bass players like ACDC and stuff all specifically requested a pick player instead of a finger player you know because I suppose it's like sort of I don't know I suppose Metallica and ACDC it wasn't like Rush where the bass was totally front and centre so um, I suppose they could afford to say listen we want the bass to be a bit more in the background and a bit more subdued you know yeah, well, that was definitely the case with Metallica with the whole Justice for All <laughs> debacle. Yep. No bass. Let's just release an album with our new bass player turned off. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I think, like, they probably, like, right enough, I think there was a thing where, like, basically the frequencies that the bass would be in, that had all become property of James Hetfield's guitar sound, you know? So it was, yeah. like, his guitar sound completely fucking... You know, it encompassed all that. So the bass sound would have had to be like super, super bassy or something, even to slightly break through. But they said they were all like, you know, taking loads of coke and stuff, and they don't even remember why they thought it was a good idea. It's just, it just <laughs> that, happened. You know? It can go either way. It's like when Black Sabbath were taking loads of coke, the album sounded great, and they came out great. So it's a, a kind of throw the dice, isn't it, with that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Because there's some like there's some Megadeth albums that sound great you know, with them on drugs. And then there's other ones that sound really crap. And they're like, oh yeah, they spent all the money on drugs. And you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, <laughs> Maybe sometimes it's a convenient excuse. That album sounds terrible. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> Funny enough, man, I was reading Lemmy from Motorhead's book. And like at the end of every chapter, he's like, oh yeah, that album didn't turn out right because, you know, X, Y, or Z. He's like, oh, the producer was a wanker or something like, you know. <laughs> so there's always a story like, yeah, there is. I I know if with your with uh Gam Bomb, you, you have a you had a producer for all your albums, but you, you did a self-produced on the new album, did you? Yeah. Um uh, basically our guitar player Domo has done a lot of engineering and stuff for the band for Donkeys and um um you know, he was the one even back in the day when we started out when he joined the band, that's when we started doing like proper demos for songs and all. But anyway, so he's got us all on the Pro Tools over the last couple of years, and it just kind of made sense with the lockdown. Uh, James, the guy who played drums, um, he was living over in Poland, working for Vader and Decapitated and all that. And um, he just, like, we we sent him the demos and stuff, and he sent us the completed drum tracks, and they didn't need edited or anything. They were just, like, totally perfect. So Mm. it made it way, way easier than, like, you know, once you have these perfect drum tracks, it was really, really easy just to start working on rhythm guitars and bass at home, you know. Um, but like to be honest, like as much as like I'm really glad we can do it, 
it is a bit of a pain in the arse doing these things on your own. Like I would way rather be in a studio with a producer or an engineer, you know, if, if possible. Yeah, even taking away the technical side of things of them helping you with the drum parts, it's nice to have that extra voice to tell you if a, if a piece of a song is shite or lads, that solo is 10 oh. times too long or something. And, you know, like we did all the vocals like through the, with this fucking mad bit of a gear where basically you could monitor it and like, uh, sing and all the wives would end up on our, our um, on our uh, guitar player Domo's computer so like it was weird being able to monitor all the vocals in real time say right we need to do this again and stuff whereas the bass wasn't it was just like send off bass tracks and then get like criticism back being like mm. <laughs> do this better and I did the fucking what's the one thing you don't do like, I was in the middle of recording bass tracks and I accidentally turned one of the pots on the bass down like, oh, God. and recorded another like recorded another three tracks and then realized they're all fucking useless and I had to go and redo them. Like. Did you think did you think it improved your bass playing having to record yourself and being able to look at the stems transients and say like well you can see when you hit a do a hit out of time yeah. and I suppose there's a lot of comping you can do these days. You could do fifty takes and comp them all into one epic brilliant take yeah. would you be well, what do you I, I well my band really. usually record live so i don't really have the choice to do comping like not really we would usually go take it riff by riff usually so would it uh but we like we wouldn't really copy and paste riffs like the idea is really to get like 10 really brilliant chorus riffs so that you can use you know you're not having to use the same one over and over again kind of thing like you know um and it's just with the kind of nature of like like how fast a lot of the music really is that like um, I don't know, like it, theoretically, I'm sure some bands have done it before, like I've done it totally live in the studio, but it tends to be the faster they are and the more like the more intricate it is, the harder it really is to do, you know, or I guess you could do it if you're a brilliant musician. You know? I know, I, I think in, in fairness, in it, your music is really fast and it it, it, it kind of gets, it's on the line where it's the point where it's kind of counterproductive because I heard um, Lar- Lars talk, Lars Ulrich talking about the first three metallic albums it was always like don't fuck up get them done perfect and it kind of yeah. took away from them letting the songs breathe but when they started doing it the other way they were able to enjoy writing and recording the songs a bit more because it's just like let's just record a really good album track and not be worrying about in the studio getting it perfect you know yeah well i i think that um i think that's just the nature of being young man whenever you're young everyone is just self-conscious of not being good enough or whatever, you know? So, mm. and like young people are just generally sometimes cannot be pretty unhelpful towards each other. Like I don't <laughs> ever really remember being particularly encouraged whenever I was young. People were like pointing out how crap it was, but they oh. weren't being. God, yeah. I used to get roasted like crazy. Like I got kicked out of the first two bands I was in for being too shit at the base. Like, and I wasn't kicked out nicely. It was like, you're terrible. Get out. Get out get out <laughs> and you, you you play like a pointy bass is it like a jackson or something I, I was trying to see in the pictures what exactly it was but i wasn't sure like so like um so it's like an 80s oh 80s yes that bell. color is class so, um but of a whole bunch of this is like the, this used to be my like go-to one for like um i use it for recording and i use it for um like videos and stuff but i don't really use it on tour anymore so i had like a guy Picks me up another one that looks exactly like that, and um, but I used a Fender Jazz on the last album because really, like I've had one for Donkeys, and mm. they're a brilliant bass. They're very, very versatile, and they've got a brilliant sound. But 
I found it. Pro- I, w- I would probably go back to the Jacksons because I found the neck on the fender was a wee bit kind of um, slower or harder, harder to get around quickly. You know, uh, they're cheap enough. I'd say those pointy headstock bases because they wouldn't be as popular. Um, no, well, look at those ones. The Charvel ones from the eighties are between about five and eight hundred quid. And it, the problem is, see, being left-handed, it's just really difficult getting, yeah, getting gear generally. You know, so it's um. It's always a bit of a mish, but I kind of feel like I've enough now. I've got like three of those Charvels that I use for gigging and a couple of fenders for doing other bits and bobs, and that's all I, that's all I really need, I suppose, you know. A lot of the, the metal bass players use kind of active EMGs. That, is that kind of part? Yeah. Would you be using them live with the active no, bass? No, no, no. I, uh, um, I use the uh, DiMarzios and the Spectre pickups that originally came with these Charvel basses are really good. And... Um, what else have been using the Steve Harris ones, the um, quarter pounders? They're really good, mm. and um, yeah, just like occasionally we will get like a we, like one of the guitar players will get some sort of endorsement thing, and I'll be able to get a couple of free bass pickups. But we kind of like learned the hard lesson about that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. Thinking endorsements are great and all that sort of shit, and they're actually not really because what you want is just to be able to play whatever bass or guitar that you want yeah. to, you know. And like we were, we had an endorsement with this company, RSTDs from uh, South America, making these, or from France, making these guitars. And then they basically uh, gave us a little shit because there was pictures of us playing Charvel guitars, you know, <laughs> and et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's what, again, whenever you're young, you're like, oh, cool, free mm. gear. But like, you wouldn't be saying that if someone said, right, you're only allowed to play this guitar from yeah. now on. Like, you know, you, you'd rather just have the freedom to be able to, to play. Uh, the only endorsement I want is free strings. I'd be delighted. I'd be like, oh, sweet. that'll save me a fortune. Well, like, we, this is a pain in the hole. We have, a, like, one with um, with Ernie Ball through this company in the UK. And it used to be, uh, bass strings used to be six quid a set. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. This is as good as it gets, really. And then they changed it and they're like, oh, no, it's 20 quid now. So it's, it's normal it's not price. really enough. Yeah, not really a lot of difference. Really. <laughs> Whereas the guitar strings are still two quid a set. So you're just like, fuck. Bass flares, like. <laughs> well, you've been going like, um, is next year your 20th anniversary of the band? Yeah. So like you you must have some perspective on, well, metal, bass, the Irish metal scene, everything. Because like, you've been there like in it for 20 years, like <laughs> seeing an evolution of it. Getting old, <laughs> yeah. Like, um, like I remember whenever I was young. Like, I really like I grew up loving Motorhead and and um, Thin Lizzy and stuff like that. And so they would be like my like some big bass influences and stuff to me when yeah. I was growing up. And then getting into Metallica and stuff. But around that time in Ireland, like um, doom metal and death metal and stuff around the turn of like the millennium were really really big here, you know. Mm. And we didn't really play a lot of gigs with thrash bands or anything in Ireland for. A long time like a lot of our early gigs were like supporting bands like gbh and poison idea and punk bands mm. so i think it was just because we were kind of fast like so punks kind of got into us and stuff but yeah so there was a lot of like around then it was people were really into svt heads and like you know rickenbacker bases and just like like super sabbathy type gear you know which is class but Again, like whenever you're young, you just can't afford any of that sort of stuff. Like it was just, it was, I remember that was the biggest thing until maybe like 2010, just like struggling to get good gear or like mm. struggling to even know what, what kind of gear you want, you were after, you know? 
Yeah. So um, it was, did you? So that was it. Was um, Philo and Lemmy that was kind of your influences, not as much Cliff Burton and the trash metal dudes. Um, I definitely got into that. You know, the older I got and got into Rust and Peace and stuff, and got really into Cliff and uh, Jason Newstead and Dave Allison's bass playing and stuff. Um, really, especially for pick players, you know, they were like all very, very influential. Big thing I really learned from like Phil Linnett was that. If you look at it a lot of the time, same as Lemmy, he did a lot of strumming on the bass, you know, mm. and he was doing a lot of muting the strings that he wasn't playing with his yeah. with his other hand, really, you know, um, which is definitely something I think, like, this hand will, like, obey your orders, like, you know, whatever, mm. whatever your fretting hand, your brain is telling it what to do, whereas if, I really find that, like, your, pick, your picking hand or if you're playing with your fingers or whatever, that's really where 90% of the personality and in your plan really come comes from you know mm. you kind of do that, so that was, mo- figure of eight motion sometimes with your picking hand some people do that, like they'll, they'll keep it going but they'll only bring yep. it in to hit the strings at certain points yeah i've been working for ages on my pete townsend <laughs> spinning my arm around i haven't got, <laughs> quite got it yet though so. yeah you, you'll get there <laughs> yep <laughs> but the, i was thinking because you were coming on you're the first um trash metal bass player i've had on like how do you do you deal with like a lot of kind of reductionism in like people's attitudes to that kind of music because i'm thinking from my own perspective i'm in a blues rock band and we all have beards so people see us with three lads with beards it's easy top or they yep. see me they see me with a wah pedal hey you like cliff you're cliff burton <laughs> yeah what was it hard for you coming up to be like like get out of just people saying ah oh, you're just playing like kill em all metallica because people they like to be able to pinpoint things and like their only point yeah. of reference would be like the four big trash metal bands and same with us their only point of reference is like beards and blues rock your zz top yeah. <laughs> was that something you came <laughs> up against a lot at the start like yeah i suppose so like and especially with people who you find like um people who are into punk music or blues or other sorts of stuff are a lot more accepting of like you know they'll take a band at face value they're like oh it's like a metal punk band cool Whereas people who are like really into, you know, different sorts of metal or progressive metal, as you said, they do like to deconstruct and label things quite a lot, you know, which is fine, you know, because we are like an 80s thrash band, you know, in the same way that you guys are like a a blues band. So I think that there's absolutely nothing wrong with labels. And like, also, to be honest, I think that a lot of bands, like your success comes from being in a genre, you know, if you want to try and sound like you too, there's a million bands trying to do that and they're all probably better than, you know, than you. So like, if, you, if you're going to like be in a reggae band, brilliant, you'll probably have more chance of succeeding doing that. Cause if you can do mm. something really well, people will like it. Whereas if you're trying to like appeal to the widest possible amount of people, you know, it's not, it's not that easy, you know, it kind of comes down to like U2 is a good example. There's not exactly a cult of people who want to listen to U2 music. There's just people, there's the U2 fans that like U2, but like there's people yeah. that like blues and want to hear more blues. And there's people that yeah. like trash, want to hear more trash. Exactly. You know, and like, that's the kind of thing is that like, if you have songs that sound like Gary Moore, you know, Gary Moore fans are going to be on board with that. And it's the kind of same with us. Like we have some songs that are like Anthrax. So people who like that, like that. The weird thing is that sometimes, like, as you said, if you have a beard and you're playing blues, people will automatically associate ZZ Topisms to you that aren't there, you know? Oh, totally, Like, yeah. someone could watch your gig and say, 
oh god yeah all your songs are about cars or something you could say well we don't have any songs about cars you know mm. they just assume because they've already labeled you as ZZ top guys that it must be the whole package the whole fandango yeah like with you guys you don't, you, I, you haven't mentioned Metallica being a big influence, but people would assume because you're a trash band. But there's so many other trash bands, isn't there, like that people wouldn't be aware of apart from the big four. Like it's a huge musical genre. Like there's loads of bands. Yeah, but it, I think the thing is, it's probably the same as blues in the sense that like a lot of people's entry bands are the same. So like, I, yeah, I did get into Iron Maiden and Metallica and Ugly Kid Joe or whatever in the early 90s. But like, it's, you know, same as whatever the blues bands have got you into the blues it was probably down the road that you started listening to Jeff Healy or whoever, you know. I actually came out the other way. I used to be in a metal band and then I, I was living in Cork and a guy wanted to make a band. So he gave me loads of Buddy Guy and BB King and all that stuff. So, so then I heard the blues. I was listening to metal before that and jazz and stuff. Class. Yeah, like metal can be sort of limiting sometimes in terms of that sort of stuff. I think it's brilliant as a base to go and get into other music, but sometimes it can, same as punk music, it can sort of swallow people up a bit too much or they become less accepting of, you know, listen to ABBA or, or whatever other stuff that they should be listening to, you know. And do you guys, you stick in the trash genre or do you ever try, well, I've heard, an, I think, like, I wouldn't know as much about trash as, like, say, Richie from the Metal Cell. Give him a shout out. But I was listening to the new album and I was listening to, well, I'm a big Mastodon fan. I don't know, was I hearing some Mastodon influence on, was it Sheer Can? It was like a cool chorus, almost had that kind of sound. Well, you know what it is? It's probably the other way around. So, like, it is like Sheer Can is a very 80s song, but in a kind of more Dio kind of direction. So, like, I presume that it's like Mastodon or influenced by Dio in some parts or whatever. Mm. I wouldn't really know a lot of their stuff. But, yeah, I think, like, w- like we used to just be, like, only fast songs and you're not allowed to have slow parts. And now I think it's a bit more acceptable, really, to have a few chuggers on each album, you know. Um, but, yeah, we're not really, I don't know. We've always said that, like, our idea of progressing and stuff is to try and write better songs and stuff instead of trying to write seven-minute songs because... People don't want to hear seven minute songs about the turtles, like you know. <laughs> I love the way you do your solos. It's like here's a solo, but it's gone before you can even think about getting bored of it. It's like it just zips in and then it zips out. <laughs> That's that that works really well in all the songs I've listened to. Yeah, I think it's important, man, uh not going too overboard with that sort of stuff because like I love, you know, a lot of power metal stuff, but I think they can get a bit carried away and Whenever you get into that Malmsteen territory, I think the solos do start losing their effect, you know, because it's just like it's you're just going up and down the notes and up and down and stuff. I think it it is better to have like 20 or 30 seconds or have the music change to try and make the solo sound better. Um, And like I've seen Malmsteen a few times before at festivals and stuff, and he's always kind of been crap. Like there's been big giant wall of marshals with one wee drum kit in the corner and, you know. (laughs) he's just standing there and you've heard a blistering solo you've like i've heard enough now i'm moving on yeah and it's the same like raven are one of my favorite bands and their bass player is an amazing bass player um john gallagher but like they have a 10 minute bass solo as part of their show every Mm -hmm. night look and it's just hard i think like it's cool if you're going to see like you know I don't know fucking some some amazing session player or someone like what's the guy who did all the Paul Young albums was the Tito oh, Pino Palladino, or, yeah Pino Palladino. Sorry, um, 
yeah, like that sort of thing, great. That suits a 10 minute solo. But like, you know, if you're at a metal gig, it really is just people are going to go to the toilet immediately, aren't they? Like, <laughs> what, what kind of bass solo is it? Because there's a few types. There's the one, well, in rock music, I suppose Gene, Gene Simmons was one of the people to kind of make this a thing. He'd play a lick, pentatonic lick, go, Whoa, the whole crowd cheers. Then he does it again. This goes on for ages. Like, or is it a kind of a technical more? A no, no, he, like it is technical, and he like he uses like sort of Taurus pedals and like he's an eight-string bass and stuff. So he's like it's a really cool, like kind of Cliff Burton-esque in, in ways, kind of bass solos. But at the same time, I, I think it's really hard, even if it's a guitar solo or anything, to hold people's attention especially if it's a metal gig in this kind of you know you're playing in a club like maybe mm. if you're playing in madison square gardens under a spotlight it might be different or something but it's um it's definitely an acquired taste and i think the the weird thing is it's it's only 80s bands who still do it you know yeah modern bands even really technical bands like sixth or something like that they generally don't want to show off their chops in any way apart from what's in the song you know mm. Sure, even if you look at like Slipknot, when they came out, everyone was kind of disparaging of them. I knew I, I, I was kind of, you know, on defense. Who are these guys with masks and stuff? But behind it all, there's like these amazing, well, it was obvious if you listened, these guys could play the guitar seriously. And they kind of showed yeah. that off later on when they started doing solos and stuff. But it was like that. They had these chops, but they weren't there just to show them off. Like, Yeah. And like, you know what? They were, I think they were probably a very good influence on a lot of those other bands. You know, I suppose like like Lama God and stuff. You know, they really um, they showed that you could you could make really aggressive heavy metal music that didn't have to have lots of guitar solos and that kind of thing in it. You know, and when it comes to like the endurance of playing, like uh, other metal bands, kind of they mightn't be playing uh, releasing as fast albums anymore. Some of them anyway. But you guys are like intense, and you hear some bass players saying they can't do that fast stuff anymore. Do you ever find of having a problem? Like with your hands ratting, or do you think you'll be able to do it till you're like ninety? Just shuffle on and I, do it. I, I think you do. You have to warm up the old hands. Like I find that, like if I don't like do a significant amount of warming up with a um, uh, picking hand, it will get cramps and stuff. Um, and it's just bad habits as well. Like generally, the more that I'm playing from my elbow and stuff instead of playing from a wrist, I'll get like you know acid retention in my hand and all that sort of stuff. So. I try and be aware of it and do like do some warm ups or even like press ups and stuff before doing the gig to try and stop your arm from getting <laughs> too sore. But it's not like I, I always feel sorry for like drummers. Our drummer like quit there last year. Yeah, so it's that, like yeah. it's it's like I think it's just insane. Like you know the high hat hand of doing sixteenths of just doing this all night. Like you know mm. for fucking it's a it's hard work. You think it? Do you think it's sustainable? Like for someone to drum in that style for you know for as long as they want because obviously i could be playing blues like till you know i can barely you could roll me on the stage and give me my bass and i could pluck away you know and <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah like i i don't really see like i guess metallica and they're nearing their 60s now you know and but then like lars ulrich has a dude who rubs his arms and like does all that kind of shit mm. for an hour before they play um so it is definitely possible. And again, it all depends. Like, would Charlie Watts still be able to play all his parts if he was playing for The Who, you know, instead of The Stones? Probably no, not. Like, very know. chilled out as well. He's, he has amazing technique, which has held to him in, like, his whole career. Like, Oh, he's fantastic, you know. And, like, they're one of those bands, kind of like, you know, you frequently hear people ripping them out or, 
ripping out his chops and stuff like that. But sure, I, th- I think he's an amazing drummer and like you know, he's one of the classic sort of behind the beat type players, really, isn't he? Look, mm, he's brilliant. I've seen them live; they're they're fabulous live. They're, they 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 still sound as good. It's not like you're just going to take a box and say, "I saw the Rolling Stones. I can go home yep. now." The show is still class, like. Yeah, they do. They put a big, massive effort into their gigs and stuff for the age they are. And like, I really appreciate that in bands, like a Maiden or another band like that. I know they're a lot younger, but like for whatever you're paying for the ticket, there's a lot of it up on stage. You know, you get a you get a lot of bang for your buck. You mm. know, for uh, especially for dudes in their sixties. You know, it, sure. it is it. It's kind of admirable that they're willing to like to dedicate their life that much to performance, you know. Sure. Um. Doesn't Steve Harris have a new side project, British Lion? It's like a right, yeah. new band. That's great. Like, do you see? I don't know if I see myself doing that. Like, just do. He he's just in a van doing like not very small venues, and you know, back to the, supporting the, the grind, supporting the darkness on their on their tour. Like you know, that's mad. Which isn't is it? mad. Like, he'd be like used to playing arenas, and he's going back to like you know in the support band dressing room of the academy or you know that's crazy <laughs> it kind of makes me think about you were saying you know you, you tried to look after yourself like obviously i'd say you guys did a lot of like diy lads in a van sleeping in the van eating crap food yeah. when you started out like totally the first uh, couple of tours that we did we didn't even have a van because we were all like arguing no one wanted to get a driving license because they didn't want to have to drive everyone around kind of thing like so <laughs> The first couple of tours we did, we did on the mega bus over in England, where like you got the bus for one pound between the cities, like holding our heads, you know, <laughs> and all that. Um, but like I think that like, see, to be honest, that's as good as touring ever gets. Really, is like going and ha- having adventures with your mates and getting pissed and stuff. <clears throat> Nowadays, there's a lot more stops for Marks and Spencers and pot noodles, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's, no, there's shenanigans, less time and chance for shenanigans to happen these days. Yeah, it is. Like a lot, a few of the guys in the bands have kids and stuff like that. So it's like nearly, it's like our version of golf now. We escape for, you know, <laughs> get away for a week on tour and then come back. Uh, it's fu- funny. I was um, talking to Joel MacGyver there um, yesterday. He's the editor of Bass Player Magazine for, I don't know how many yeah, years. Yeah, And he was saying like that whole being a rock star on tour thing. It's just, he, the record labels don't want that to do with you if you're that kind of band anyway these days. Like, so you kind of you guys got old at the right time old older at the right time because people don't want to work with you if you're doing that stuff these days anyway because the mar- no. just, the margins are so tight like you can't afford a band to disappear on the piss and miss a tour like no and like again that's probably one of the things that like a lot of bands get signed because of being proactive you know if a label sees a band or gigging loads and self-releasing they've got their own merch they're going to say great well this is way less work for us. You know, this band have already got their shit together, mm. so it's easier to... Whereas the first time we ever did a demo, we all arrived with our cans of, like, harp, being all like, way! And the guy was like, you can't drink while recording. And we were like, what? We didn't know that. Like, so... Big shock. You so, can, though. But it's just fairness. Fun. You could if you want. <laughs> if you weren't paying for the studio by the day, you could have a few cans, like... Yeah. Now, now that uh, we're a bit older and sitting doing it ourselves, you can... Have a rebel red while you're uh, while you're doing your bass tracks, you know. Bother. <laughs> well, how was that a big deal? Like, obviously, it is a big deal. Or at the time, did you realize how big a deal it was getting a record deal? How, it was like on your second album, you got signed, was it? 
Yeah, because like basically we had we made our first album. A label approached us and said, uh, "One of the bands that we love, Nuclear Assault. They're they had like a little label, and they said, "Well, yeah, we'd love to bring out your album." And basically, we went and recorded the album, and then the label went bankrupt, and we were sitting holding the album, going, "Shit, right, okay." So we self released it, and then a little label in Germany picked that up. And then it was kind of basically because we were doing a lot of those, you know, sail rails over to England and doing all that. And you know, we met McGowan and stuff on the way over and he gave us great advice for bands, you know. <laughs> it's just all like any band who ever made it out of Ireland did it on the Hollyhead Ferry. So, and we were yeah. talking to him on the Hollyhead Ferry. So it was like, fuck, glass. Shane McGowan, is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, like, not in the last years, but uh, uh, when you met him, he was probably mad for the chat even more, like. Okay, well, like he was still, he was still able to sort of mooch around on his own and stuff like that. Mm. Back, this is like two thousand and six or something. But yeah, so basically, it was through going and doing a lot of stuff over in England, and we got some wee notices in the NME and things like that. That um, that got Eric Records interested, and then whenever they um, got us on board, it sort of opened up European touring a lot more, you know. And like we did like two or three European tours for that album. And then the next album that we did for them, um, we did like 200 and 220 gigs all around the world for, for that one. Like, and like a lot of those gigs were fucking shit. And, you know, yeah. you're what you're doing is you're just paying your dues and trying to get your name out there, you know. Mm. So like we're never going to fucking come home to playing the ambassador kind of thing. Like, you yeah. know, but um, it, it meant that basically our name was out there more instead of being like a, an Irish band, we're kind of looked at more of a, a worldwide kind of band you know yeah if you look at um god is an astronaut have you heard of that band they're like an yep. irish and they're huge outside of ireland but the average first yep. the average music fan even or band fan in ireland never heard of them yeah and it's like there is a lot of stuff like that that is kind of for export even pat mcmanus the blues guy like yeah, yeah. he does play a lot around ireland and stuff but he his following is really over in the netherlands and like where mama's boys and stuff were big so um and it was the same with Gary Moore, like most of his fans were all in Russia and Georgia and stuff like that, mm. you know. Or even Rory Gallagher was huge in Germany and Holland and those places and pretty big in Ireland, but bigger, I think, out in Europe, in Europe, like. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's the great thing. Like, like it is brilliant being an Irish man in that regard of like having, you know, Phil Linnett and Rory Gallagher and uh, Gary Moore as, you know, the ambassadors of Irish rock music. Like, you know, it's an amazing lineage of of great great players you know yeah well phil in is definitely the coolest bass player that ever lived he he he, he has that that title and for without any contender i'd say maybe him and lemmy oh, like they're up there you know as the front man bass player yeah and like really just like brilliant rock and roll stars you know they really were really identifiable looking and like it's it's probably i'm trying to think what was the last band who had a bass player uh, who were like big, like Wolf Mother? Is that the la- like who? What bands? Like, well, I suppose like, uh, what are they called again? Uh, who uh, don't have a guitar player? Royal, Royal Blood. That they're probably the yeah. that that band, but not really rock. They're, they're good, like they're good, yeah. But it's not. It's not, he's not a rock star in the style of Lemmy or or Philo, like. No, and like I would like probably I think I would like Royal Blood a bit more if they had a bit more of a kind of like uh, there was a bit more bass soloing and stuff going on. It is a wee bit kind of like the riffs are too sort of white stripesy for me in places, mm. you know. And sometimes, sure, with the the effects and the octave up pedal, it's like 
very guitar sounding almost when you, the riffs and stuff it can be it gets it's in the guitar territory sometimes yeah it definitely is which is okay you know but it, it, it definitely whenever it's all fuzz bass all the time like that it stops becoming bass guitar you know when it is just really you're playing riffs you know along with the drummer uh, and do you use effects at all in the band just a sans amp so just use that for my preamp and that's pretty much it really like I used to have a compressor and use that and but like I really think that the sound of like as long as you're using a decent tube amp like that would be the other thing really like you know as long as not to say that like valve state amps are shit or anything like that because there are certainly good ones but tube amps are the way to go uh yeah well on for a bass on tour like when you have a tube amp and valves it's just can be exact they break a lot like so for me it's yeah. i just get solid state and because i i'm ter- i've blown up loads of amps i have five broken trace elliots so <laughs> i stopped using yeah, them. It's, it's absolutely fucking like i um blew all the tubes in my head there about a year ago because i had set my head up and plugged in the uh cables at the back but one of them wasn't plugged in properly it was just inserted mm. and uh, about 20 minutes of it being not connected properly to the cab and that was it they all went so are you solid state now or will you keep stay with the tube amps? my tube amp stays in the garage and it never leaves the garage basically so usually whenever we're going on tour and uh, if we're supporting somebody they'll be bringing the back line or you know if we usually try and figure that into our deal so the two guitar players in the band now are using the uh, Kempner amp profilers you know yeah, the class, pedal yeah. or the heads or whatever and they sound great. You know, they sound exactly like the kind of... Um, now, I don't think they're necessarily very versatile, like as in, like you can program them to do a whole bunch of different things, but like it's really... It, it is super handy having the exact album tone, you know, on, on a USB to put on. Um, now, apparently the bass ones are grand as well, but we'll just be using cabs and those and I'll use like an SVT or whatever, whatever they're going to rent, you know. Yeah, they are class, but I'd just be like, good luck fixing one if it breaks on tour. Like, it, it's just a circuit oh, yeah. board or something, or someone spills beer on it. Like, it's game over. Yeah. And, like, the, that, like they're nearly, it's, there are a very sensitive bit of, bit of kit like that. And, like, if you're saying that's one of the reasons why, you know, uh, tube amps are a pain in the ass because the tubes keep breaking on the road if you go over a bump, I would say it's exactly the same story with the Kempners. They're easy to have problems with, you know. But touring must have gotten easier for you, you and the guys over the years, like since, you know, you moved up the ranks, like it must be more yeah, comfortable well, now, like getting, you know, food and all that and proper transport. Yeah, like they're still sort of like, as I said, generally it's about what the crack you're having is if the crack is really good and everyone's in great form, you don't mind being in a van for like whatever. Or if you're going in a van around, you know, Spain or Mexico, then it's totally grand. It's just kind of like, doing big gruel and like 15 UK tours in the rain in a van and stuff. But like we're, we would generally like if we can afford a tour bus or whatever for big long things we would. But I, I think the last tour we did that was like three or four weeks long is probably like a few years ago. Like what we're generally we'll do like a week or two and then do festivals and then do a week or two kind of thing, you know, because as I said, like it's hard to, it's hard to juggle normal life and playing in a band, you know, because yeah. even if you were in Testament, you would still be making less money than you would be if you're, you know, doing any job. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, pack, pack Tesco or anything, like, you'd be making more money oh, well, than like, being yeah, in a band. Like, like. 
sure your man from testament said he was getting 120 quid a gig when they fired him the bass player like and he was a founding member so <laughs> and like he said whenever he filed with the irs at the end of the year they were like don't worry about it you're not making enough money to have to pay that so yeah, that's it. Or even if someone saw like a band's, you know, revenue for the end of the year and it was, say it was 60 or 70 thousand euros, they'd be like, wow, you guys have made it. Like, well, split that between four people and see how much money you can live on. Like, Yep. So like that, that is really the issue with a lot of, a lot of rock music is that unless you've moved up into that kind of bracket of making like several grand a night on, you know, your guarantees, i.e. more than a grand and a half or whatever the, like it, it's not as financially rewarding as it used to be in the 80s or the 90s and stuff and that's not necessarily just because the cd you know cds not being there i think a lot of it is to do with the cost of everything going up you know mm. so, but um, your band has always kind of taken risks when it comes to or, or at least you tried to stay on the zeitgeist of what's going on because you're one of the first bands ever to release an album for free like and it was even on the cover mount and metal hammer like as a, as a free giveaway yeah. like where have you always been kind of a business conscious that you you were one of the driving forces behind that i was reading some quotes online you were kind of talking about the whole free giving away the album free thing yeah well like it was it was definitely something that uh like we were radiohead fans so <laughs> we didn't do it first radiohead definitely did it before us like but like we <laughs> we talked eric into it they had said that they had wanted to try something like that to see how it would work out and um in some ways it worked out great and then there was other things like some shops wouldn't handle it um just because they said oh we didn't like that uh, like what would they call them walmart in america they said that they wouldn't stock the cd so but yeah like i think you have to try and read the audience like and that's the, the weird thing is that your audience changes over time you know like a lot of people probably started out listening to us whenever they were 18 and stuff and now those people are you know like in their thirties probably. So um it's about trying to like trying to relate to people and realizing where people are moving. So for a long time, yeah, like downloads was a big thing. Wanted to have your download music up for download for free. And then after that, like YouTube was a big thing. And like it was all about trying to get onto YouTube and stuff. And mm. I think a lot of our fans now are just sort of Spotify or buying vinyl kind of people, you know? Like it's harder to get people who are who are in our demographic basically to go and watch videos and stuff now because they're kind of they're like us they just want to sit and listen to it on spotify or on i or like on your lyric videos you know? i think uh your band is perfectly suited to the lyric video because sometimes i can't hear what the singer is saying because it's going so fast yep. but then when you're watching the lyric videos like ah this like we had a, you have a song called um super cops and i was like i was listening to it on spotify and i was like is this like a oh they're gone political is this about some serious topic and then i saw the video i was like oh no it's another kind of well, your lyrical teams are usually kind of jokey stuff but you have some serious like songs as well um social commentary but yeah okay. you know and i think that's just like you know doing stuff with punk bands and stuff and like i don't know like i think as well it, it, it is a bit of a it, it annoys me sometimes with fans that i really love you know um or you know get political but also you know i think like if something's wrong you should speak up about it you know and like we've mm. always had anti-racist songs and stuff like that so um but it is it is weird that like you know going back to what you were saying about you know uh, the easy top thing like people have imagined content of your band like they imagine they know exactly what it, what the crack is so 
sometimes whenever we would have like an anti-Nazi song or an anti-right wing song, people would be like, oh my God, I'm unfollowing you. I never knew you did that. But like, <laughs> you would presume those people also aren't really that familiar with the band. They're just like, no. oh yeah, casual fans. So. And really, they're not really that much of a loss if they're <laughs> pissed off about your anti-Nazi song or whatever. Like, yeah. You don't really need them as fans. Imagine no, getting stuck really. in a corner I'm, talking to that guy at, at night for an hour, like at a gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that mightn't be as fun, really. Getting a lecture, getting a load of spit in your ear. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that, like I think sometimes people don't really realize that on the internet, that, you know, outside of the internet, the, the real world is going on and it doesn't really matter if you don't like a song or don't like a band or whatever, you know, it's not the end of the world. No, and in terms of your your bass um, playing, uh, have you ever been a kind of studious bass player? Like, do you do you have a practice routine, or do you do you just pick it up when you feel like? Because everyone is different. Like, I've had fellas on here, set, some of the most prominent session players in Ireland, and they just pick up the bass when they feel like picking it up, and yeah. that works for them. Like, it, that's some I, myself. I have kind of a regime. I like to practice every day or try to keep it up. Like, you know, I find like um jamming twice a week with the band uh the cover band and then working on gamma bomb demos i definitely play the bass like for an hour every every day well like maybe five days a week or something like that so i definitely feel i'm usually on top of what i'm doing but i like i always sort of try and put in a bit of extra homework whenever it comes to getting ready to rehearse or getting ready to record or getting ready to tour and stuff but like honestly like apart from doing like little little scales and stuff like that that i would usually do to warm up before doing a gig 90 percent of it will be doing like you know like just holding the neck of the bass like that and like just mm. and like trying to work on a on the uh, strumming hand you know because i find that like the more you can do that and the more you can get into it uh the easy, easier whatever it is you'll want to be and like i'm pretty much a stickler for using the one mil picks as well so it's like enough, I just ordered a whole pack from today. These ones have one in my hand. Where's my camera? The Jim Dunlop kind of nylon ones, is oh, it? Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, I just ordered a load of them today because I started using them. I was like, wait, they're way better than the hard ones. I'm using the well, these ones here. That's why I am at the moment. The, the only like problem with the ones I ordered, they're pick boy. And for some reason, like I, I give lessons to kids like, and I always they always lose their plectrums. But these pick boy picks have marijuana leaves on them. <laughs> I'm like, right. I can't give like a nine-year-old kid this plectrum, and he goes home, <laughs> and his father's like, oh, "What's who gave you that plectrum?" I was like, but they a, a don't. Beardy that, guy. <laughs> beardy guy. I was like, but they don't actually sell any plectrums without marijuana leaves on it. I think that's ridiculous marketing. So maybe they're just like, listen, anyone who's going to be playing the bass, you know, with a pick this size, is going to probably want to smoke. So. <laughs> but did, did you ever get into like um the theory are you into that side of things um not really man like I, i'm trying to make some inroads with my lead guitar playing at the minute oh cool so like um i've been sort of learning bits and bobs and trying to like sort of learn some modes and things like that but generally on the bass like i think it was i suppose by the time i sort of got to like you know playing for about 10 10 or 12 years around 2012 or 13 I started really sort of understanding where all the notes were. Well, like mm. up until the 12th fret really on the bass or the ones that I was using commonly. So it made playing a lot, lot easier. And I do try and sort of, I try and make wee progressions every so often, but 
I don't think I'm ever gonna be able to like like play endless walk and baselines. You know, I don't, mm. I don't, I just don't have the memory to memorize something like that. You know. Uh, well, you there's it's just a formula they use. They use little. They go like you can earn like twenty of them little formulas. So you actually don't have to yep. remember them. You're just like I'll do this one now. I'll do the other one. Hey, I'm not very good at it either. <laughs> That's how they teach it usually. Like, but yeah, to really be good at it you have to understand it and it becomes like a language like but the modes are class that every bass player can learn so much from the modes like they're really interesting when you start hearing it in your ear like what the different ones sound like funny enough i'm i'm doing some recording with a there's like a friend of mine's daughter has got like a punk band and they're trying to do their demo and stuff and the bass player was saying like yeah i really want to put like a bass fill in like this and i was like right the number one place you shouldn't put it is at the end of this verse or whatever or the mm. you know the start of whatever because people always write them like that and then what ends up happening is when they're finishing the song there'll be a vocal noise over it or there'll be you know a guitar scrape like i used to do yeah. like bass things like that and you'd also over the top of it and you couldn't hear it so it's like try and find somewhere interesting where there's a hole in the singing so if they're singing find a hole where you can do it and then that's the best best place you know yeah, or you can well in uh, Steve Harris is really in good influence. He he does a lot of kind of um harmony. He harmonizes a lot, doesn't he? Like he'll be going up the yeah, neck. What contrary motion they call it, isn't it? So the guitarists are going down, and he'll actually be going up. And that yeah. would that influence you? That kind of stuff that Steve Harris does. Yeah, well, like and like specifically that 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 kind of thing. You get that quite a lot in Megadeth, and, and like obviously they got it from Steve Harris. Like you know. And it just tends to be like those little like bass licks that are FN not like two, five, seven, nine or whatever up up the neck like. But um I don't know. Like I think a lot of that though is like it's more you're moving sort of away from like the playing the bass and it's just more the bass's job in the band or the bass player's job in the band, you know? And um like I think that was the great thing about Steve Harris is that like he doesn't really have any backing vocals or anything like that. So like sometimes if the guitars are doing some sort of cool harmony, his job is just to try and keep, you know, a bit of the song still going or add mm. a different flavor to it, you know. Yeah. And uh you you do sing as well. You're like the backing singer in the band, aren't you? Yeah. So, so it's I was trying to figure out listen to the albums, like which are you the guy <laughs> <laughs> are you the low voice that does the kind of the, the chorusy <laughs> bit? <laughs> yeah, the kind of Dave McSteen <laughs> kind of vocals. <laughs> but I, um like I, I like I am I'm happy. Like I think that's probably I would say like songwriting and back and singing is equally as much as my job as as being a bass player like in the band, like you know. Um I suppose like there, there's some fantastic bands out there with really, really complex bass lines in them. Um and like I suppose our stuff in some ways is complex. But um I sort of feel that like a a lot of my responsibility is trying to sort of steer the song in the right way like in terms of like heaviness or like back and vocally that kind of thing like you know mm. and does it affect your i suppose the bass line that definitely does the bass lines you write because you know you're going to be singing because if you listen to yeah. tin lizzie on record he philo actually plays completely different bass lines live they're they're quite simplified compared to the records like but yeah. i'd say you play the same thing live and on the records it mo- for, yeah for the most part although there's some occasionally what will happen is like you'll come up with a cool part or whatever. Like uh, we have a song called Kurt Russell and there's like a bit in the middle of it, like a wee sort of bass breaky kind of part. Like, and um, like 
I was like, okay, right. Well, whatever happens in this, I can't, I can't do any backing vocals in this part. So, and like the rest of the guys were like, oh, don't worry, I can do it. And then like the other two guys didn't learn the parts either. So I was like trying to have to do it live and play this riff. Like, and it really, <laughs> it always makes me feel really self-conscious because you're kind of aware of like trying to do this part, sing this part, and then not even really being aware of what the beat is behind you. You're just like, oops. <laughs> Uh, and yeah so i do i attend it like tend to try and make it sort of a bit more simple if it's parts where there's lots of singing for me to do you know and your singer had vocal troubles so you ended up doing the vocals for entire gigs before didn't you yeah we've had those sort of things just because like like acting the leg basically was the problem at the start so like you go into like playing hamburg and then going out in the reaper band getting pissed and like singing tom jones at four o'clock in the morning in pubs <laughs> like so that's how he lost his voice originally. Like, and then, um, yeah, he just, he had like lingering problems over the course of a while. And whenever he went to go and get the surgery, they basically said that he couldn't make any noise for two weeks after the surgery. He just had to sit and be quiet. Mm. And then he went to like an opera singer and started trying to learn how to sing formally and stuff. And it de- like it did his, his voice the world of good and stuff. Um, and like, I, it, probably helped me as well in terms of like being able to sing full gigs and stuff it means that like you can do as much as you as you want like you know how did you feel like going out having only done backing vocals before was it a big deal like having to do the whole gig or did you just take it in your stride it's actually happened and it's like it happened once or twice back in the demo days and then it happened once or twice in like 2008 2009 and then again, whenever he hurt his throat, like, so I'd always done it. Like, and like, I, I kind of felt sort of as if, if there was an emergency, I could kind of do it, you know, but it's like a different thing. Like whenever Philly's singing, it's like having like a real front man, like Mick Jagger type lad there. Yeah. Whenever I'm doing it, it's just like having some dude, you know, like <laughs> yeah, to the generic, thrash, yeah, <laughs> generic thrash voice guy singing, you know, um, and that, I think that's the big problem with a lot of metal that people don't even really realize is that, singing can be very very off-putting for people who are like not really necessarily fans of a you know if you if you don't like sort of metal or if you're not like super into it a lot of the like extreme vocalists or boring vocalists can just throw people off like Mm. every band had a singer like steve tyler from aerosmith you know there'd probably be a lot more people interested in yeah (laughs) Uh, people's voices can be like marmite like i'm a huge smashing pumpkins fan but my girlfriend yep. doesn't look whenever i played him in the car she, i'm like she's in a band herself so i'd be like listen to this song it's brilliant but she can't get past corgan's voice sometimes like really god i've never thought of his voice as being particularly like divisive either like you know oh big, even big... when i was starting out in bands people uh the band i was in we wanted to do a few covers but the other guys in the band didn't like corgan's voice but i like it it suits the music perfect <laughs> yeah i know i'd be uh, i would be generally uh a big fan of the pumpkins like i really like zwan as well whenever they did, he did that kind of album it was pretty good and um, probably not as much i have you bothered with any of the stuff they've done since getting back together with not really but i just i'm only getting back into them now you know you know the way you have all your teenage bands you then you forget about yeah. them for about 10 years and i'm kind of listening to them again and i'm kind of t- i'm really amazed by how awesome the guitar playing is the solos the riffs I kind of forgot how good they were at, as guitarists as well as songwriters. Like, oh yeah, like especially like when we were growing up, Gish was like a a really really surprising album, kind of like the first Manic Street Preachers album, because like, then there was a lot more rocking going on than you would have thought. They were like, I I had no idea that like Billy Corgan was such a 
like an amazingly guitar player, really. Yeah, you he's know, class. And he did most of that, didn't he? Like James Aya didn't really do an awful lot of the soloing on Gish. It was only later on that he started getting into it. Yeah, they're really weird solos as well. Like I, I was trying to learn one and it was kind of unusual, which is great. It's what you want from a good lead guitarist. Like it's his own yeah. style. Like Absolutely. Um, and so is there any sign of gigs coming back down down your side of the country yet then? Or? Uh, no, not really. Like we have a tour in the UK in November, two weeks. Um, might be doing a few Northern Ireland shows in August and that's it. There'll be not... I, there won't be a single show down here until like right. October maybe which is not when like, when's the um, when's the UK tour in November then uh, it's the first two weeks in November like it's um, <laughs> for the whole place like we're up we do a lot up in the northern the northern up in northern England but we're doing and we always play in the 100 club in London have you done that venue That's, before I would love to though. They, they have loads of metal bands there they, they have all types of really? bands it's not it's not exclusive to any genre they they have punk nights and ska nights, blues, blues every well, Tuesday. Lo- it's one of those, ve- those venues that have always like been like, man, I would absolutely love to, you know, it's like a mu- one It's like a museum. Like- when you go in, they have framed pictures of all the acts. So you have like, oh God, Dizzy Gillespie, Metallica, Sex Pistols, Rolling Stones, G- G- Eric Clapton, literally everyone for all, every genre has played there. It's pretty awesome. Like. No, I'd love, I'd love, absolutely love to. The reason I was asking is because we have a UK tour from like November fifth to fifteenth or something like that. So mm. maybe we'll meet you for Burger King somewhere on the yeah on the Queen's Highway. <laughs> Definitely, somewhere. yeah. Can't beat the Burger King, <laughs> but yeah, you should can also get into the Hundred Club because it, it's it's small, it's it's very accessible. Like it hasn't changed though, which is cool about it. There's I'd like, love um, to, man. like I think every time we played in London ever has been in uh, the underworld for the last 10 years anyway is that, is that in which Camden, is grand is like, yeah like I like it's a grand venue and stuff but I would like I would absolutely do it like my dream would be to support somebody at the Hammersmith Odeon and like mm. do that like it's always been like one of those venues that I'd love to love to play in or like you know Cork City Hall or whatever like that you know yeah we did we did um in Brixton we played is it the windmill have you heard of that venue it's run by a yeah. guy from Donegal and there's three Rottweilers live on the roof there's a flat roof over the bar and there's three three Rottweilers live on the roof, and when you're going in, you like see them. They're looking at you, and the, the, he has his signature beer, and it's the three dogs on it. It's absolutely mental venue. Like it's kind of famous in London. Class. It's a real kind of spit on the floor, like sawdust kind of job. Like Dio, he doesn't really involve himself in the music. He's a really sound guy, yep. but he lets like you know one of these venues where the guy running it doesn't get involved with the music. He lets the people on the scene locally run the gigs and it just works yeah. perfectly that way class sorry are you going back on tour soon as writing that on the horizon hopefully um we're supposed to have like a european tour in september um but i don't know but it's just kind of so hard to tell man really like um someone else like arch enemy announced a tour around the same time so i think it's surprising like if other bands are announcing tours and stuff, I think there is maybe a chance of it happening. But I know the numbers in Germany are high, and um, they haven't really figured out what the vaccine passport's going to be. Mm. You know, if you're going to need to have a different vaccine for entering each country, or even have a test for entering each country, so bit of a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, and like the other thing is really, is sort of the closer it gets to the time, the more expensive it really is to sort of pull the whole tour off. You know. Mm. 
And is it headline tours yeah. you mainly do now? Because you've done a lot of support tours in the past. Or is yeah, it, uh, no, like it's uh, who we uh, we're supporting next order. We were like a, an American band on the European run, and then we have a headlining tour in the UK in November, and we're playing like a festival in Leeds and stuff on that tour. So, hmm. so because but then again, bo- like it, it just, sorry, so but no, our booker in England was showing us like how much ba- support bands got paid forty years ago. And it's pretty much the same as what you get now. Like, so maybe it's different in the metal scene. Like, is it's tough? It's a tough slog being a support band sometimes. Like, because the pay yeah, can be terrible. Like, like. Sometimes, like things you'll just get an attractive offer. Like, so the tour that we were doing in um in Europe, it was like a kind of like we'll give you X hundred a night to do this tour and uh, supply the backline and the uh, tour bus and pay for the petrol and pay for your flights and stuff. So you just get on the bus and. You know, we got a rider and stuff. So, um, but like we've done tours where like supporting Sepultura, where it was fifty quid a night. Look, you know, that's crazy. And like that's <laughs> and what I fan- would say that to be. Like, that's the industry standard was fifty quid a night. <laughs> would the well, it really it depend, We were our book was also telling us about some guy did a tour with a big band and he was getting something like you said fifty quid, but it just so yeah. happened that the people that follow this band they love buying merch. It, it, particularly in the blues rock world people buy a lot of merch so he was yep. he was doing a solo support slot and selling a rake of cds every night and he came out of the tour like laughing like it, it, would you find yep. that on those tours that people would like the support bands like yeah. be responsible re- like, like it can be the difference between life or death because a lot of the times as whenever you're in that support uh, position like if you don't like we can we can negotiate basically all that kind of stuff now and like insist on this like 48 beers and 10 vegetarian dinners or whatever it is we mm. want whereas whenever you're like in a like a younger position you can't really do that it is it's just sort of difficult and we've done tours where like the venue have said oh you know 20 percent of the of your merch tonight is going towards the venue or 35 percent or those actually like, why, why should the venue get your your merch money like but it was weird, like, because, like, sometimes the venue would say, because you'd be supporting Exodus or Overkill or whatever, and they'd say, I tell you what, we'll do you a deal, just give us a thousand pound, and then we'll not charge you any, you know, any fees, which is totally fine for Overkill, because maybe they're going to sell, like, 400 t-shirts, and, mm. you know, they're not worried about, you know, whereas we would just be like, fuck this, like, I'd rather stand on this pavement outside, you know, selling I've heard of an Irish band like... doing that, that they, they did a yeah. German tour and they just sold everything out of their van. They were like, fuck this. Yeah, because, and like, the, a lot of, like, European agencies won't understand that attitude. Like, they're like, yeah, but you're going to want to sell t-shirts and we're like, fuck no, like, we did this uh, record company and they were nice guys and stuff, but they wanted to uh, charge us 10 euro a CD for, like, you know, bringing CDs out on tour, like, that's and we crazy. just said, well, we're not just not going to do that. Like, you know, we'll just tell people to go and, you know, download it for free or buy a T-shirt or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they were just like, well, no, you can't do that. You know, you have to buy them. And we are like, no, that's awful. <laughs> we we find using the, the swipe very handy, like, because when people are drunk, they spend all their money, their physical cash on drink. But then when they have the card, they're like, oh, I love you guys. I want the CD. I want everything. And they'll just swipe away and <laughs> buy loads of merch, which is great, that's- like absolutely um so yeah it's just it's one of those things isn't it it's just a means to an end now like uh, selling merch and stuff is so important for touring like you know as i said even whenever your fees are going into the thousands and stuff 
it tends to be that your logistics and stuff like that slowly start following it like you know and it's like the more money that you're bringing in and the bigger places you're playing the more crew and the more stuff like that so at the end of the day no matter what like well unless you're playing in front of thousands and thousands of people most of your money is really going to be coming from the merch table you know Cool, well sure. Uh it'll come back when it comes back. Like is there where where should I get everyone to check you out? Is it um do you do you put up yourself much anything on social media like bass play alongs or that kind of thing like? Not really. Like um I I don't know why I've never done that, done that sort of thing. Funny enough we said that uh, next album we might do that as in we might just like document the whole thing like as in the writing of the songs and you know go from there. Like, we've done bits of studio reports and stuff, but I've never really been a big play-along or cover kind of guy. Like, we've always been kind of, like, very anti-doing covers because it's kind of like, especially in metal, if you're doing covers, people are always going to want to hear your version of some Slayer song more yeah. than your, you know, Every your night they'll be screaming for it. Play, play Rain and Blood again. Yep. But, uh, no, so, yeah, like, just uh, Instagram, people can follow my dawn of the dead collecting habits and stuff like that or uh just on the ga- uh, gamma bomb uh, dot net or gamma bomb any of the socials you'll you'll see what we're up to so, yeah. are, are you all into that kind of um evil dead and zombie stuff is that yeah kind of well like some of us differently like philly uh, our singer is a big indiana jones fan so he collects a lot of indiana jones toys and star wars toys and stuff like that and everyone's got their own nerdy <laughs> nerdy crack going on really. well, I love the art for the new album it's your man that did the art for like some of those films and it looks yeah, absolutely class and like he he's done a couple couple of them for us and he's a really um, he's a really 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 great uh, great artist but I know it's, it's kind of like with metal like that it's easy to get pigeoned into the horror thing isn't it like we've done like sort of a couple of like kung fu themed albums and stuff like that that's why we wanted to do like a nautical theme on this because you're like you know, like Iron Maiden or whatever, where eventually it'll be set in space or it'll be, you know, set in the pyramids. So, like, <laughs> there's a spoiler. The next album will be fucking pyramids in the front of it. Pyramids in space, maybe. <laughs> it, that's, a con- that's a concept album, is it? The new album. There's kind of a team running through it, the Seaside. Yeah, but like, yeah, but like, we were definitely aware, you know, like Maiden, like with Parslave and stuff, where it's a concept album sort of like in the sense that there's a couple of tunes that are about it and then the rest of it is just about you know john connor from terminator 2 or whatever other legend (laughs) you like the 80s films anyway all those 80s uh, action films pretty much like yeah just like we we be big like kind of a lot of the stuff like italian horror movies and action movies and like even like chinese and japanese rip-off movies and stuff we kind of really like them because we kind of feel a bit of an affinity where it's like you know american thrash bands are the fucking avenger movies and we're like the kind of like what was that fucking horrendous irish um kung fu movie oh, from the Fatal 90s deviation that's us look that's the, that's the gamma bomb equivalent in cinemas so. <laughs> fair enough watch. right well cheers thanks a lot for coming on and uh yeah sure best luck with the upcoming tour <laughs> <laughs>